Hello, this is Rachel Bevin from Oncology News Australia, proud producers of the Oncology Journal Club. In today's special COVID-19 update, Eva Segaloff chats once again to Professor Reiner McIntyre. Reiner leads the biosecurity program at the Kirby Institute, which conducts research in epidemiology, vaccinology, bioterrorism prevention, public health and clinical trials in infectious diseases. She is one of the world's leading authorities on pandemics, so we're very lucky to have her take on COVID-19 globally the vaccines and how these will impact cancer patients, the importance of ventilation, and much, much more. This episode will be of broad interest, so I urge you to share with family and friends so we can spread these important messages as widely as possible. For the latest oncology news and podcast updates, please subscribe to the Oncology Newsletter for free on oncologynews.com.au. This is Rachel Babin, and this is the Oncology Podcast. So we've been so lucky here on the Oncology Journal Club to have the expertise of my very good friend, Professor Reiner McIntyre, an internationally renowned voice on COVID-19 and somebody who speaks with the strength of science and not just other people's science, but her own science and her own data relating to previous SARS viruses and now SARS-CoV-2. Reiner's done a number of interviews with us, particularly focusing on the impact of COVID-19 on cancer patients. And we've been very lucky to secure this update with a particular focus on the upcoming vaccine program. So Reiner, very huge thanks from our audience and from me. Welcome. It's a pleasure, Eva, to be talking to you again. Thanks, Rhina. So perhaps just a quick update where we are in Australia and globally with the pandemic. So the pandemic today is much, much worse than it was in March or even in July last year. You know, it's there's been second and third waves in countries like the UK and the US and much of continental Europe, India, Indonesia, have a lot of disease. Um, There's been 400,000 deaths in the US alone. And they use, you know, countries like the US and the UK are scrambling to try and roll out the vaccine, but also coming up against a lot of logistical barriers as well as vaccine hesitancy. So we'll talk a little bit more about that. But is the pandemic worse than you predicted or as you may have expected? I think it's as expected. What the good news is that the vaccine development really has been expedited and pretty amazing, really. You know, there were lots lots of experts, even as recently as the middle of last year, saying, oh, we may never have a vaccine. You'll probably remember those voices. But of course, we've got, we're going to have a huge choice of vaccines. You know, we've got three where the phase three trials are published, but we're going to see more and more vaccines become available over the course of this year. And they'll be varied in efficacy and safety, and some will be better than others. But we're in a very fortunate position now with the vaccines. I must say you always said that we would get a vaccine because of the combined power of pharma and technology. Yeah, I mean, the kind of effort that's gone into developing vaccines is unprecedented, never happened before, you know, and with such a 
concerted global effort to develop vaccines, you know, it, it was always going to come up with the goods. Great. So let's, can you talk us through the different vaccines, both sure. the available ones, the ones coming? So there's four basic vaccine technologies of the ones that are in the pipeline and there's over 60 in clinical trials and there's over 170 in preclinical development. So there's a lot of vaccines. And the four basic um, technologies are protein subunit vaccines, which is like the Novavax vaccine that we will have in Australia, which is just taking an antigen from the surface of the virus, usually the spike protein, and delivering that. And then the next technology is the RNA and DNA vaccines. So you've heard of, there's been two phase three trials published for mRNA vaccines, Moderna and Pfizer, and that seems to be really breakthrough technology, very high efficacy of those vaccines. And then the last is the vectored vaccines where either the genetic code or a protein is vectored onto another virus usually replication deficient so that it's safe for immunocompromised people. And the AstraZeneca vaccine is one of those, and it's vectored on an adenovirus, a chimpanzee adenovirus in this case. Whereas there are other vectored vaccines, including one being developed by Merck that's vectored on a measles virus, an attenuated measles virus. So those are the four basic technologies. You know, Almost all of the vaccines being developed fall into one of those four categories. So we've all heard the debates about the various vaccines and which ones we should have. Can I just ask you, do they all cost about the same to develop? Uh, No, the costs vary quite a bit. And generally that is reflected in what you pay for them. You know, like some of the vaccines on our national immunisation program, like HPV, for example, which would be close to your heart as an oncologist. It is close to $100 a dose, so is herpes zoster vaccine. But other vaccines like flu vaccines are about $14 a dose. Um, my understanding is in this case the AstraZeneca vaccine is somewhere like around the $2 mark per dose, which is extremely cheap. And the Pfizer and Moderna are about $12 to $14, which is similar to flu vaccine, much cheaper than what we pay for herpes zoster vaccine or HPV vaccine. So all relatively cheap at this stage. But countries are paying markedly different prices for the vaccine. So that's just purely marketing and commercial rather than production. At this stage, I think because there's not a large amount of supply, most of the manufacturers are dealing with governments, national governments directly, and they have procurement arrangements generally that will be you know, cheaper than what you might pay if you're buying it on the private market. Although I think in some countries it is available on the private market, maybe in some Middle Eastern countries. But, yeah, it also depends on the regulators in each country and what what the price would be. Great. So, Reiner, I think you were accused of making wildly inaccurate predictions of doom and gloom in Australia. And my favourite Twitter response was, yes, the predictions are based on lack of intervention. And if a government wants to be praised on its intervention, it would expect that the predictions didn't come true. I think your predictions have come true, as you say, in the UK and the US. So politics plays a big role in this. Yeah, look, I think politics does play a big role and people only come unstuck if they're just a talking head without the expertise behind them. You know, I'm pretty confident about everything that I say because I do understand the science. 
And as you said, those were not predictions. They were estimates of an unmitigated epidemic and how bad it could get. And anyone who thinks that's ridiculous just needs to look at Manaus in Brazil, where 75% of the populations become infected, or just to look at the UK or the US and how severe it is there. And, you know, you'd have to be deluded to think that that's not possible in Australia. Of course, it's possible, but it hasn't happened because, number one, we closed the international borders in mid-March, and that's the single most important measure in um, achieving control in Australia. And secondly, we brought in the hotel quarantine, uh, whereas initially we were relying on voluntary home quarantine, but people were breaching it. And those two things have really kept the level of disease very low in Australia. And we have had, obviously, outbreaks and a big second wave in Victoria, but even the Victorian second wave was able to be controlled. And at the very worst, there was like 700 cases a day compared to, you know, 30,000 cases a day in the UK or 100 or 200,000 cases a day in the US. Yes, we're a little bit shielded, I think, from how bad it is in the UK and other places. I think a bit of news fatigue, but there are reports of, you know, hospitals running out of oxygen, very high readmission rate for patients discharged from hospital with COVID. And I think that's been lost in, in the discussion. Yeah, look, I think in Australia, it's except perhaps for people in Victoria, it's not a reality. If you're living in the UK or the US, you probably know someone who died of COVID or is in hospital with COVID. It would touch you personally. But most people in Australia haven't been personally touched by it in the same way. So it's hard to really get your mind around what it is and how severe it is. And do you think the events of today uh, with a new US president and vice president will change the outcome in the US? I think so. The first one of the things, his plan, uh, Joe Biden's plan looks very good. Um, one of the th- elements of the plan is activating the Defence Production Act, which really they should have done a year ago. That means you can repurpose manufacturing to make medical goods, you know, ventilators, masks, respirators, so there's enough product for everyone, even test kits, you know. And I think some of the other structural issues, one of the big structural issues in the US is the healthcare system, that it's a privatised system so that, you know, I've heard directly from people in the US that um, if you don't have insurance, you've got to pay $100 for a test. So, you know, obviously nobody's going to get tested if they've got to fork out $100, especially when they're hard hit economically by, you know, various sectors collapsing, et cetera. And I've also heard directly from people in the US, as you would have too, Eva, because I know you've got family there, but that people who've had a positive test, there's like no follow-up. You know, nobody contacts them, nobody tells them what to do. It's just chaos, you know, absolute chaos. And I think similarly in the UK where they've pretty much abandoned contact tracing, which is one of the really influential elements to epidemic control. The other thing in the US, sorry, was that the CDC was kind of bound and gagged and not allowed to do their job. There's actually enormous expertise in the CDC. They could have, if they were allowed to lead and guide the response, they could have done a a good job. And I think that's all changing with the new CDC director. And, you know, they've got all the expertise there. They should be able to manage it. But UK also had all the expertise and they weren't gagged at least as obviously. So They certainly had the expertise in the country, but when you look at the UK, one good thing about the UK is they put their the minutes of the SAGE meeting, which is their main committee um, deciding on policy 
decision, uh, decisions for the pandemic, they put them up on the website so they're public. Anyone can go and look at the minutes. And, you know, in February they said, oh, if, it, if the epidemic gets too big, we'll stop contact tracing, which is just that's just going to make the epidemic explode. So clearly they didn't have the right experts and um, it's quite a big committee now. There's a lot of members on it. There are some people who do have expertise, but judging from what they're doing and the kind of measures they're taking, it's a bit of a dog's breakfast over there. So what about Australia? Because there has been some criticism of some of our committees, particularly in relation to acknowledging the role of aerosol spread. Yeah, look, that's been something that at the beginning, you know, WHO, the CDC in the US, most many countries would, except China and Taiwan and a lot of the Asian countries, which immediately gave airborne precautions to healthcare workers. And, you know, countries like China and Taiwan had virtually, after they realised what the transmission mode was, they pretty much, you know, controlled health worker infections. But that didn't happen in, in Western countries where, Generally, you know, the guidelines said use droplet precautions and therefore health workers were treating COVID patients were denied a respirator. And, you know, we saw 4,000 health and aged care workers infected in Victoria, you know, and that forced the guidelines to be changed at the state level. But the national guidelines remain unchanged, although I hear there are some changes coming in those guidelines. I don't know what those changes will be as yet. But yeah, the other other big issue for Australia is, so WHO in June last year acknowledged that airborne transmission does occur and is important in indoor settings. And that's because in indoor settings, aerosols accumulate. And aerosols don't just get generated when you do an endotracheal intubation, you know, they're generated when you breathe, when you speak. You don't even have to cough or sneeze. And over time, if you're in a room with somebody who's got SARS-CoV-2, over time those aerosols just accumulate. It's like cigarette smoke, so except you can't see it. So the longer you're in that, that environment, the greater the risk of getting infected. And if you don't acknowledge that and give people airborne precautions, then they're at risk of getting infected. And we've seen that with hotel quarantine breaches time and time and time again. Because we've denied airborne transmission, we haven't acknowledged ventilation and addressed it. We haven't acknowledged and addressed respiratory protection. So we've seen a van driver driving passengers from the airport to the hotel getting infected wearing a surgical mask. And, you know, a lot of those shuttles don't have windows that can be opened, you know, and if your air conditioning's on recirculate, you're sitting in a tiny little space, you know, with, with someone who's potentially infected. And and because the pandemic is so severe overseas, there's a much greater risk of infected people coming in through the international borders now than there was even six months ago. And then we've seen all the, you know, the cleaners, the security guards, etc., getting infected because we're not addressing ventilation, we're not addressing their respiratory protection. And addressing ventilation means you actually measure any facility that's chosen for hotel quarantine should be assessed for ventilation. You need to be looking at the corridors, the foyer, the elevators, how good's the ventilation. You know, you can buy a carbon dioxide monitor for $50 and carry it around and test the level of carbon dioxide, which is a pretty good reflection of how good the ventilation is. And if you do that, you know, you'd be surprised how I would recommend that, you know, for clinicians to just get one and test the ventilation in your rooms and if it's bad and if you haven't got a window that you can open just buy one of those air purifiers with a HEPA filter and stick it in there it makes a huge difference there's been a study looking in school classrooms which estimates the viral load 
that you would breathe in the air over time if someone is infected in that room and if if you can't if you've got poor ventilation it's just a linear increase in the concentration of virus over time so if you're in there 10 minutes you might be okay but if you're in there 1 hour 2 hours your risk is really high and the risk just dramatically uh, is reduced by putting an air purifier in there which you know you can buy those for anywhere between 300 to 700 dollars at Bingley or whatever one of those shops bunnings <laughs> and they're, they're not expensive for but you know we're not addressing it even the CDC guidelines now have a whole section on ventilation but it's just barely mentioned in our guidelines some sort of cognitive dissonance there you can't see it so it doesn't occur but you can see a droplet is there any other explanation no i don't think so the science is pretty clear and you know most of the people Making policy decisions are smart people, so I don't think that's it. I think there's some, I, I, you'll have to ask them. I don't know. We'll invite them on the Journal Club podcast. Can I come back to cancer in the immune-suppressed patients? Because yeah. as I understand it, they were included in the trial of the Pfizer vaccine, or no, though not huge numbers, but not in any other vaccine trials that have been published. Yeah, with the coronavirus vaccines, you know, SARS, MERS, SARS-CoV-2, there's always been the concern of adverse immunological reactions like antibody-dependent enhancement but should be less of a concern in immunosuppressed people simply because their immune systems are are suppressed. I think the bigger concern is immunogenicity and how well people will respond to a vaccine if they're immunosuppressed. So I think it's important to have high-efficacy vaccines for people who are less able to respond. So elderly people, are, you know, have immunosenescence where the immune system starts to progressively decline and from the age of 50, actually, and they are prioritised. People over 65 are prioritised for vaccination. I, I'm not aware that immunosuppressed or uh, special medical risk groups are in those guidelines, but I'd have to check. So, Rhina, actually, yesterday, the Australian New Zealand Society representing people with stem cell transplants and uh, CAR-T therapies actually put out a position statement asking for the Pfizer vaccine in Australia rather than the lower-efficacy AstraZeneca vaccine based on the expectation that there would be a lower efficacy response. What's your comments on that? And do you think it applies to cancer patients who are not quite as immune-suppressed as these very profoundly uh, suppressed patients or having uh, stem cell and CAR-T therapies? I mean, I guess, you know, with cancer patients, it depends what where they're up to with their treatment, whether they've just had chemotherapy, whether they've had radiotherapy, all of those things could affect their immune responses. You know, ideally, anyone who's vulnerable, such as cancer patients, would be able to get a high-efficacy vaccine. You know, I think clearly specialist societies are starting to look at that for themselves and come up with their own position statements. So it's not just the cancer patients, obviously, it's their families and also the healthcare workers. Would it be your recommendation that they receive the highest efficacy vaccine? 
early when we have um, more choice and more availability of vaccines, we'll be able to move into more targeted vaccine choices for people based on risk. They've already got some of that in play in terms of the prioritisation, but uh, I'd say probably it's constrained by supply at this stage. So in Australia, because we're not in the midst of a a situation like in the UK or US where you want to vaccinate as many people and you'll trade efficacy for availability, does does that still apply in Australia? Are we better waiting for supply of the higher efficacy vaccine or are we better just vaccinating with the supplies that the government's organised? I probably can't comment on that, Eva. All I'll say is that I think we will have more and more options through the year and it's the situation's not going to be static. You know, it's going to be changing over time, you know, at this but that also applies to disease epidemiology, you know. We've seen with the Victorian second wave that you can't you know, you can't assume the situation today is going to be the same in a week's time because the majority of the population is still susceptible to this virus, so we could have another wave, a large wave of epidemic activity at any time. That's the thing that, you know, makes it, I think, more urgent to get going with the vaccination. But I think, you know, diversifying the options as well is probably something the government's looking at as more and more of these vaccines come through. I guess from the cancer clinician point of view, we'd like to advocate for the most efficacious for our patients. And as you've said, balance that against waiting longer. So we do hope that the Pfizer vaccine is made available for cancer patients as a very vulnerable group. Is is the is your specialist society putting out a position paper? Yes, I just emailed the president just before this interview, uh, having seen that paper position paper come out from the haematologists. I guess we'd like to be informed by the science, but if you're a purist, you would say the only trial that included cancer patients was the Pfizer trial. So that yeah. is the best data that we have. Can I ask you what about um, there is no vaccine currently licensed for under 16-year-olds, so uh, children and adolescents with cancer. What's your advice? Should they be vaccinated? I think that's really for the specialist societies to determine. And Certainly in the US there have been recommendations made for different groups for kids to be vaccinated even though there's no data. So I think that's a judgment call. You know, there's no reason it's going to be the safety is going to be, you know, different in in kids younger than 16. Maybe I'm certain that the trials will come and there will be data coming on kids, but I think in terms of there's the potential for vaccinating kids in special risk groups, but in the general community I think it'll happen when when the trial data are available. And can I ask you, is there a role to assess vaccine response with post-vaccination serology testing? That's a difficult one, really. We don't routinely do that for vaccines, except for healthcare workers, where you've got to prove that you're immune to a disease before you can work if you haven't been vaccinated. 
to prove that you're immune. The absence of low, low levels of antibodies or absence of antibodies doesn't necessarily preclude a immune response. In fact, that the cell-mediated response is thought to be more important than the humoral response. So I, I don't know. The reason I ask is it was part of the recommendations of the ANZ TCT group. Where they've written, where possible assessment of vaccine response with post-vaccination serology testing should be performed in TCT patients. I guess it's dangerous to make some of these requests where you don't know, as you say, what does it mean if there is a low response? Should you revaccinate? What do you think about statements made like that where there's not a lot of data? Yeah, I think if there's no particular pathway or plan based on what the result of that serology is, it's probably not worth doing. But if if there is a sort of decision support pathway based on what the serology shows, such as, you know, revaccinate or but we're in a data-free zone then, you know, in terms of giving a different vaccine after you've had a full course of one vaccine or giving a third dose when it's only a two-dose schedule. Uh, some of the vaccines in the phase one, two trials did look at dosing schedules and looked at two versus three doses, but I think you're, you're moving into a data-free zone there. So what about this issue of delaying the second dose? Is that likely to happen in Australia? And even if it doesn't, we do have some international listeners. I think Hans has his family listen in Belgium. But for anyone uh, internationally listening, do you think it would be more important for cancer patients to get that second dose on time or not necessarily? First of all, I don't know what the decision on the dosing schedule will be in Australia. That's what the TGA is determining. They may give a range and say something like, you know, the second dose can be given between 28 days and three months or something like that. We do know with other vaccines that, including the HPV vaccine, you know, which initially was a three-dose schedule, but then it, uh, more data identified that you, if you space out the doses over a longer period, you actually get a really strong response and you don't need three doses. You can do a two-dose schedule. But in a pandemic, you know, um, a long interval is not ideal. That's a really long time, three months between doses. But I think you just have to wait and see what the recommendation is because it might just be a range rather than a fixed interval. And let's say in the UK, would you be more comfortable with a trial interval in the higher risk groups would you be more fussed about sticking to that than, say, in a in a not particularly high risk population? Yeah, I think if you're in, if you've got a lot of community transmission, then you'd want to get the full course of vaccination done as soon as possible. I mean, the mRNA vaccines are three weeks. The second dose is given three weeks after the first. So I think that's a consideration as we get more vaccines to choose from and more availability, that's another consideration, you know, the optimal dosing schedule. So just what do you think could be the consequence of delaying the second dose in the UK for cancer patients that they would have really not a lot of protection after the first dose? And I guess the very elderly as well. There is protection after the first dose. So I think, you know, probably the the risk of getting severe disease would still be substantially reduced after the first dose. You know, if that's 
if that's the vaccine that's being used, then I guess you have to just take all your precautions, you know, use your mask and reduce your exposure in crowded settings, et cetera, as much as possible until you get fully vaccinated. But even then, the recommendation is to continue wearing masks and social distancing, et cetera. In areas of high transmission or what about now in Australian areas of relatively low community transmission? I think that'll vary depending on the epidemiology of the disease. So if we're having, if there's something, you know, we've seen small outbreaks in places like Brisbane, Adelaide, you know, Sydney, and recommendations have changed accordingly. But the other consideration is the the mutant strains that we're seeing emerging in the UK, South Africa, Brazil. If, if it's one of those strains, then you would want all your precautions, especially in a place like Australia where we don't really want one of those strains to take off and become the dominant, you know, cause a huge epidemic. So far, it's been said that the mutant strains are still covered by the current vaccines. Is there a risk that a strain will come that isn't covered or are these vaccines pretty robust across the spectrum of likely mutations? They're pretty robust, so coronaviruses don't mutate in the same at the same rate as, say, influenza. But there's been some data published. It's more sort of in vitro data that's been published on the South African strain, which does suggest the vaccine may be, you know, not as effective. But we don't know. We haven't seen that confirmed in clinical data. At this stage, overall, it seems like the vaccine should still work. The mRNA vaccines can be pivoted very quickly to match a mutant strain. Six weeks is what I've heard. Some of the other vaccines might take longer, but any vaccine can be adjusted, you know, for a different antigen. Great. Look, this is information that is so valuable to us, Reiner, giving it in the way you have that's so understandable. Can I ask you... I guess it's sort of a moral or ethical question. So people who won't be vaccinated against uh, hep B, for example, are precluded from doing risk procedures. In terms of cancer patients and staff, what questions should be asked about people uh, where a vaccine, healthcare workers that say where a vaccine is available but refused? Should they be prevented from working with cancer patients or should cancer patients be informed and have a choice? So all, almost all states have legislation for healthcare worker vaccination to mandate it. So you've essentially got to show evidence of vaccination against a range of diseases like measles, varicella, etc., hepatitis B. And if you can't show evidence of immunity or vaccination, then you're precluded from working in certain clinical areas if there's an outbreak. So I would suspect it's the same, it'll be the same for the COVID vaccines. That, that you know, maybe I'm wrong, but I think it'll be incorporated into that kind of state-based legislation to make it not fully mandatory, but to provide strong incentives and disincentives to make sure healthcare workers get vaccinated. So you're saying that's more than just a hospital policy that would have to be a legislative change? Do you know if that's on the legislative agenda? Um, the legislations, the state legislation specify the vaccines, so it would have to be amended to specify COVID vaccines. And are you aware of any states where that legislation is coming under consideration or 
could that be forgotten? Uh, no, I don't think so. I think uh, I'm sure they're considering it, but I'm not privy to those discussions. Great. So what we've learned, uh, Ryan, I, I think is that we should accept the information given to us and take a vaccine when it's available. I'm not sure about the lobbying and pressure for the best vaccine. We lobby and pressure government for the best anti-cancer drugs, but we don't always get them. Here, it, it seems to be a little hard to understand why you wouldn't give the highest efficacy vaccine to the most vulnerable people, but we don't know that that won't happen. Yeah, I think it's a matter of supply, Eva. There's, you know, enough for five million people with the Pfizer vaccine at this stage. So they've they've, you know, prioritized that first tier will be some healthcare workers, absolute front lines so are working in ED, um, ICU, paramedics, etc., but not other other clinicians and not GPs. So they've I think it's based on supply. So they've done their prioritization with probably with estimates of who they can cover feasibly. But I would assume they'll they'll be looking to get more supply and when that happens they'll be able to, to vaccinate other other groups. So do you think Australia will get to herd immunity through vaccination in, in what sort of period of time if the current circumstances sort of continue? So to achieve herd immunity, it's not sort of an accidental thing that may or may not happen if you, it's actually got to be a goal and then it's got to be planned and strategized as to how to achieve that goal with the best chance of success. So if that goal, well, we've heard from the government that the ultimate goal is herd immunity. You need about, based on the current R0 or infectious uh, infectiousness of the virus, um, you'd need about 70% of the population to be immune. About 20% of the population are under 18. So you could theoretically achieve that with vaccinating just adults, but that would be a big task that, you know, have to get 90% of adults vaccinated. Once children are able to be vaccinated, then it becomes more feasible and you really need a high efficacy vaccine. The higher the efficacy, the lower the level of population coverage you need. So if you had a vaccine and the efficacy, you know, the efficacy rates that we've had quoted to us are efficacy against symptomatic infection, which is not relevant for herd immunity. For herd immunity, you need to know the efficacy against all infection. So how well does it prevent infection? Not how well does it prevent disease? which is what symptomatic infection is. So, And the AstraZeneca um, interim trial results does give some data on asymptomatic infection, so you can look at the efficacy against all infection, and it's lower than the 62%, which is the efficacy for symptomatic infection for AstraZeneca. Pfizer and Moderna, it's 95 and 94% for symptomatic infection. So the efficacy against all infection for the AstraZeneca looks much lower and 62%. For the, we don't, we haven't seen data in the published trials for Pfizer and Moderna, but the FDA data for Moderna does have something in there on asymptomatic infection. It actually looks quite effective against asymptomatic infection. So we don't know because we haven't seen the full publications, but um, maybe the RNA vaccines will, will be more effective against asymptomatic infection. And I'll just ask you, because I know you're very passionate about equity, global equity, and the particular efforts that have been gone into to ensure that 
all countries in the world and particularly low and middle income countries receive vaccine. Can you give us an update on that situation? And also, can you tell me how the Pacific and certain countries like some of the Asian countries, low and middle income Asian countries have done so well uh, keeping this pandemic at bay? You know, countries like some of the small Pacific islands, they just shut their borders straight away and they've remained essentially COVID-free. In uh, some of the countries like Papua New Guinea, there hasn't been a lot of cases, but we're not sure how good the case ascertainment has been. Some of the Asian countries like Indonesia and India have had a lot of disease transmission, but others like Taiwan, um, Singapore, Hong Kong, Thailand, Vietnam, have had pretty good control. South Korea as well, although South Korea is now having, you know, a large epidemic and a lot of countries that did control it well through most of 2020 are having resurgence now, including South Korea. So, but they kind of resisted countrywide lockdowns and tried to do it, and that that included all of last year with um, just vastly expanded testing, testing and tracing and um, localised lockdowns. So what about these efforts to provide vaccine equitably across uh, low- and middle-income countries? There's an initiative called COVAX, which is an initiative of the WHO and Gavi, the Global Alliance for Vaccine Initiatives, or I think that's what it stands for. And they, uh, the COVAX facility, each countries have to buy into that, right, commit to it and provide some level of funding, and Australia has then you are guaranteed a minimum amount of vaccine. And through the COVAX, I think Australia does have um, access to Moderna, but it'll be a very small quantity. And that, so most, many low-income countries have signed up for COVAX, so they will get a minimum amount, a guaranteed minimum amount of vaccine. Um, Generally, that will be for their health workers and first responders, probably enough to cover health workers. Other, some Asian countries are manufacturing under license as we are. So India is manufacturing the AstraZeneca vaccine under license like we are. So I think we'll see a lot of granting of licenses to manufacture. Other countries don't have manufacturing capacity. So any country that doesn't have vaccine manufacturing capacity will be just dependent on procuring it any way they can. Fortunately, these vaccines are a lot cheaper than some other vaccines. You know, pneumococcal conjugate vaccines, for example, are very expensive vaccines and that's been hard to get equity with those vaccines. You're looking at $100 a dose and three doses for a full schedule, whereas, you know, the Pfizer vaccine is $12. So I think, it, you know, the COVAX is very encouraging and uh, it's a good initiative that will ensure some degree of equity. So an ignorant question, Why? what is it that makes a vaccine more expensive? Usually it's the production, the production, you know, if it's very complicated and time-consuming and, in, in, you know, the reagents are expensive and whatever, then, then, you know, the price gets passed on to consumers. And it seems to be that the AZ vaccine is the easiest one to locally manufacture. Is that correct, or is it just a IP sort of issue? CSL is a you know experienced vaccine manufacturer. Any of the sort of traditional vaccine manufacturing methods, like 
even the Novavax can be made by CSL, which is a protein-based protein subunit vaccine. But the mRNA is really a brand new technology and it needs a different kind of infrastructure for manufacturing. It's possible to create that infrastructure in Australia. I think it would take about 12 months to set it up. If the government wanted to, they probably could. But in terms of CSL and their capacity, my understanding is they can make the Novavax as well. But that for 2021, they've only got the capacity to do the AstraZeneca and maybe 2022, they could make Novavax. Why is it that Pfizer and Moderna had the ability to do the mRNA technology so quickly? Were they looking at that already for other vaccines before SARS-CoV-2 or were they just able to pull that technology and the equipment and expertise together? Yeah, they, they both the companies partnered with other smaller startups that were working on mRNA technology. And I think, you know, it was it's sort of not been used in vaccines before successfully. So although, you know, work on mRNA um, technology has been going on for decades without a lot of success, it, it is very breakthrough technology and I suspect it used more and more in drug drug delivery as well in the future. What was the breakthrough bit in layman's terms or simple terms? The way of giving a vaccine is you give the actual antigen, you know, the protein on the surface of the virus or the virus itself that's been killed or inactivated or, you know, like measles, mumps, rubella vaccines are inactivated by viruses. So you're giving the antigen directly to the to the person who then develops antibodies and T-cell responses to it. In this case, you're giving the genetic code. There has been work done on RNA and DNA vaccines in the past. The DNA vaccines haven't been that successful, but there are a couple of DNA vaccines in development for SARS-CoV-2, but I suspect based on the history of DNA vaccines, I'd be surprised if they're as successful, but we don't know yet. Giving the genetic code to manufacture the protein yourself and then develop the immunity to it. But you said they've been trying to get that to work for ages. So what was the breakthrough that it got to not, work? Not specifically for vaccines. So there, you know, a couple of different groups of people working on it, a couple that was working on it in Germany and then another woman who'd been working on it for a long time in the US who'd sort of got hadn't got anywhere, couldn't get funding for her research and actually got you know, demoted, I think, at one stage in her career, but she just persevered with this idea of um, mRNA technology and that's kind of been the backbone of it. Catalin Carrico is a scientist who got demoted and couldn't get funding for her research who started the work on these mRNA, on mRNA technology. Yeah. So she'll, she'll get a Nobel Prize so, yeah, as a compensation story, you know. She was working wow. on it in the 1980s or the 1990s and nobody believed in it. She was at the University of Pennsylvania. She got demoted, no money coming in. Um, her bosses weren't supporting her. And, yeah, somehow she was still there at the time of the pandemic. And um, Right. And do you foresee any of the upcoming vaccines to be more efficacious than the 94 95% currently for symptomatic pat transmission um it's always possible 
you know, we've only had three phase three trials published and there's a lot more vaccines being developed. We'll have to wait and see. But I suspect there's going to be at the higher end of the range. What is the commercial incentive for all these other vaccines? I mean, they could be better than 95%, but there's not a lot of room there. I mean, look, I think every vaccine developer intends their vaccine to have the highest possible efficacy, but sometimes it just doesn't turn out to be that. But I think, you know, generally one of the influences on whether vaccines see it all the way through to, to commercialisation is the commercial potential. And if, if it's a crowded market and there's lots of other products and your vaccine, you know, has a, a something that's really not a desirable feature in it, then often it's not worth the continued investment and pumping money into something that's not going to be feasible commercially. It's got to be feasible, you know, for a company to to make it. So are you surprised there's still that many under development? No, they all sort of started in earnest last year and we'll see more and more vaccines become available. And it's a very compressed timeline. You know, normally vaccine development can take 10, 20 years. So to see, you know, more than 200 vaccines in development in a year is amazing. And so they're obviously anticipating that the vaccine would need to be given recurrently rather than just an initial set of vaccination? We don't know yet. That was the initial assumption. You know, we've only got short duration of follow-up on these trials at this stage. You'll need a few years of follow-up on the trials, which is still a few years into the future. So we won't know until until all that long-term follow-up is conducted. And, you know, with other vaccines, your antibody levels can drop off, but you can still remain protected. So it really depends, you know, but you may well need a booster. It doesn't, we don't know what the what the timing will be, whether it'll be 12 months, five years, 10 years, we don't know. But how will we know if we don't have a measure that reflects? We will have a measure. All these subjects of the clinical trials will, you know, there'll be subsets or subgroups that'll be followed up for longer periods of time so that eventually we've got data. You know, the trials only started last year, so at the moment the longer follow-up we've got is probably six months, but um, eventually we'll have 12 months, 24 months, etc. follow-up from the trials. But we'll have to wait till people get a second infection or people who haven't had an infection get an infection again or we'll do it on antibody levels that you said aren't necessarily predicted. So usually in these vaccine trials, you'll be testing the antibody levels as well at each time point follow-up, yeah. And is there any evidence that people who've had the infection can get it again or that's dictated by severity? There's been documented um, reinfections generally, uh, also, there's been evidence that your immune response is more robust if you have a more severe infection. So the more, you know, the more symptomatic you are, the more likely you are to have a robust immune response. And that's why kids, for example, are often seronegative after infection. And that's why it seemed, it appeared that kids don't get infected, but in actual fact, they do get infected, but it's very transient and mild, and a lot of the younger kids don't seroconvert. So mild infection generally or asymptomatic infection is less likely to seroconvert. Well, Rhina, we've picked your brains for an hour now. I could ask you for another hour, but I think that will uh, 
probably exhaust our friendship. All your listeners as well, I think, Eva. (laughs) No, people are hungry for information and for information from a really reliable source and and explained in detail rather than a a one-liner or a, or a, a tweet. But thank you so much, Rhina. We hope we'll have you on again because I keep promising you it'll be 10 minutes and you keep believing that. But thank you so much. Thank you for your advocacy for cancer patients and your expertise and your robust upholding of science. It is recognised certainly in Australia amongst cancer physicians and I think patients and GPs that you've been really a source of truth, acknowledging the subtleties and the, the things we know and the things we don't. Thank you very much. Thanks, Eva. It's a pleasure. Thank you. You've been listening to the Oncology Podcast. If you enjoyed today's edition and would like to subscribe, head over to our website, oncologynews.com.au, and sign up to our newsletter. Thanks for listening.